This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT1. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Disorderly Conduct, Grit TV with Laura Flanders, MSF Canada, The Young Turks, Dennis Trainer Jr., The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, Activism from Best of the Left, and The Real News Network. Senator Ron Wyden, the Democrat representing the great state of Oregon, chairs the Senate Finance Subcommittee on International Trade, Customs, and Global Competitiveness. In that capacity, you would expect Mr. Wyden to be up to date on the terms of the central international trade pact President Obama's trade delegation has been negotiating for years. But you would be wrong. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, which the U.S. is cooking up with most of the rest of the Pacific Rim, namely Australia, Brunei, 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 Chile, Canada, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam, is being negotiated in such secrecy that even Mr. Wyden, the senator who chairs the committee that oversees trade, is prohibited from knowing its emerging terms. But it is not a secret from everyone. According to the Citizens' Trade Campaign, although policymakers are to be kept in the dark about the policy until it's been made, quote, approximately 600 corporate lobbyists have been named as official advisors, granting them steady access to the negotiating texts. If an international pact whose terms are known to corporate lobbyists and unknown to duly elected Democratic representatives sounds to you like it will probably end up helping corporations and not Democratic populations, then you are very astute and have earned a gold star for the day. What little we know about the pact, uh, because the citizens' trade campaign has been able to obtain and leak certain provisions, shows exactly that. For one thing, it is clearly not about free trade, which there totally already is between Pacific countries. You know, tariffs, all that kind of stuff. Not a problem. Of the deal's 26 chapters, 24 enumerate new rights and privileges for corporations. Like take chapter 12, which deals with, quote, investor rights. This chapter constitutes, as trade lawyer Lori Wallach said on Democracy Now!, quote, literally a parallel system of justice. Whereby, if a country adopts new environmental or labor, labor protections in contravention of the deal, foreign corporations affected by the new laws can sue in corporate kangaroo courts made up of private attorneys with no conflict of interest laws, and then they get to raid the treasury of the country that passed the regulations for unlimited amounts of money. The TPP also focuses heavily on intellectual property uh, and protects the interests of copyright and patent holders like pharmaceutical companies that line the pockets of their executives and shareholders with billions of dollars by ensuring that their drugs are far too expensive for, say, the millions of people dying of AIDS to be able to afford them. Doctors Without Borders insists that the AIDS pandemic can be stemmed, but only if inexpensive generic antiretroviral therapies can be produced to scale. And the primary obstacle to this are the intellectual property articles the Obama administration wants written into the TPP. Note that patents, which are government-granted monopolies, are actually the very opposite of free trade. Scariest of all, the TPP is being designed as scalable, meaning that any country will be able to join, as the U.S. will doubtless put them under considerable pressure to do, after its provisions have been locked in. That means that the TPP's shifting of power and sovereignty from ostensibly democratic national governments to profit-motivated transnational corporations could conceivably extend to the whole world, plausibly only a few years in the future. Pretty scary stuff, I think, but hey, happy Halloween. Fuck this shit, man. <laughs> 
It is very, very scary, isn't it, Alexis? Well, what's so horrible about this is that this has been kind of discussed on some of the um, email lists I'm on about like financial reform and regulatory reform, and basically people are concerned that all of these regulations that we've been fighting so hard for and are even being gutted, really, as we speak in the United States will basically be null and void because of something like this because you can basically just choose your regime um, and, you know, make up these little kangaroo courts and basically just dodge everything under this agreement. And so it stands to just kind of under undercut all of the things that we've been fighting for. Yeah, th- so the only... Um, like recourse that we have currently, p- we people, normal everyday people, have against the um, you know constantly expanding arms of capital is our governments, which granted the charters for these corporations and, and want to stand up to them. And what what the Trans-Pacific Partnership does, as you know, NAFTA did before it, although NAFTA is limited to you know Canada, Mexico, and the United States, and Trans-Pacific Partnership is scalable, so it could be the whole world. Is hamstrings the ability of national governments are only fail-safe against this to stand up to these corporations. And that's why I say, like, look, um, the whole project of the Enlightenment and, like, coming away from monarchies and feudalism has been to, like, grant demos, right, the people, the sovereignty that once belonged to kings. And this, you know, I think is a, you know, after after the Cold War ended, um, I think really the the era began where transnational corporations started to we we started a passage of sovereignty from you know nations to transnational corporations, and I, I really think that if the TPP were to pass and to extend to the whole world, that that would really be a nice bookend, and and the whole era of you know the 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 era of national sovereignty would be done for. We would we would simply have transnational corporations you know at running their own laws and having their own courts and and not accountable to any government at all you see it seems we're building us a jail for folks who think the future's not for sale and it won't even help to lock the door cause we're already in your house and we're coming back for more Cause this grass ain't got no roots Just look the other way, my friend While we rewrite the truth And forgive us if there's no check in the mail But it seems some things are just too big to fail And what would you use that billion dollars for anyway? Cause we know where you live And we're coming back for more Other big news in the U.S. these days is what we can glean about something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What can you tell us about this trade deal that's being described as NAFTA on steroids? Well, actually, I can't tell you very much because it's being kept secret. Uh, Not entirely secret. Uh, Major corporations are part of the process. They know what's going on. Uh, uh, The public is kept almost entirely out. Uh, Probably there's some selected elements of Congress that are allowed to know of it, but it's uh, it's essentially an executive agreement jointly with multinational corporations. We can imagine what it's like, and there's leaks here and there. It uh, appears to be uh, basically within the kind of framework of the World Trade Organization and NAFTA rules. These things are called free trade agreements. They're not. They're, uh, for one thing, a, a lot of what uh, they're involved with doesn't even isn't even trade. It's just called trade to sneak it into the 
uh, these agreements. So a, a good deal of NAFTA and the World Trade Organization rules are uh, investor rights uh, provisions. That has nothing to do with trade. It's called you know, trade-related uh, uh, investment mechanisms or something. A lot of it is pure protectionism, uh, very high uh, protectionist uh, uh, elements. It obviously undermines free trade for the benefit of pharmaceutical corporations, uh, uh, the, the, you know, Disney and others. It's uh, just to try to protect their exorbitant profits and harm the population. These are uh, patent rules so high that if they had existed in the 19th century and been enforced, the U.S. would be an agricultural producer today. Could never have developed. Uh, nor could any other country. In fact, England couldn't have developed because it was violating what we now call piracy is the way the rich countries developed. Now, they, there's a phrase for it in trade theory. It's called kicking away the ladder. First, you violate all the rules, market rules, and then by the time you've succeeded in developing, you kick away the ladder so others can't do it too, and you prate about free trade. Uh, the pharmaceutical corporations, for example, claim that they need these exorbitant profits for research and development, but it's been shown pretty well, particularly by economist Dean Baker and a couple of others, that, uh, that most of their serious research, the hard research, is done in the public sector anyway. And if it was all done in the public sector and they were forced onto the market, that would be a huge saving to com consumers, but of course a reduction in profits. And that's the kind of thing that's going on. And what happens to all worker rights and well, labor rights and environmental protections such as they are in deals like this? What do we know from NAFTA about whether the standards of all the countries involved, and we're talking about 17 countries in the Pacific Rim, including Vietnam, whether they rise up or, or trickle down? Labor rights don't exist. In fact, uh, NAFTA is a good case. It's been studied quite well. The, it's one of those rare trade agreements where the, uh, the working class and the peasants and farmers and all three countries suffered uh, a lot of profits. But uh, one of the reasons for ex uh, NAFTA, for example, is uh, uh, take the Mexican. Uh, there's, a, there's supposedly an immigration crisis in the United States. Why? Why are people fleeing to the United States? Well, some are actually still fleeing from the ravages of Reagan's wars in the 1980s and Guatemala Highlands and so on. But plenty are coming from Mexico. Now, the Mexican-U.S. border used to be an open border, pretty open border. And pretty much the same people live on both sides, like most borders. It was established by conquest, in fact, a very aggressive war, the U.S. conquered half of Mexico. Uh, in 1994, Clinton started militarizing the border. Uh, 1994 is the year when NAFTA was pushed through. We don't have internal documents, so you have to speculate. But I think it's likely that the Clinton administration understood that uh, NAFTA was going to undermine Mexican farming. Uh, Mexican Campesinos are quite efficient, but they can't compete with highly subsidized U.S. agribusiness. The U.S. doesn't observe the free trade principles. Those are for the weak. You know. So the agribusiness is highly subsidized and pours uh,
products into Mexico, drives out Mexican farmers. Uh, maybe they try to go into the cities, not have jobs to support them, so they flee across the border. If that's what happened under NAFTA, what can we expect if the Trans-Pacific Partnership goes forward? Well, probably on steroids, like the critics are saying. But we really can't be sure, because it is kept secret from the population, though not from the corporate sector, from which we can draw some plausible conclusions in any event. Uh, this is being rammed down the throats of the populations of the world by uh, uh, state corporate power acting in tandem, so we can make guesses as to what it's likely to be. Now, quite apart from the record, we've seen what the others are. So many Affordable medicines save lives. Generic competition brings down drug prices and makes medicines more affordable and accessible. Their availability enables more patients to be treated. MSF uses affordable generic medicines to treat diseases such as tuberculosis, malaria, HIV AIDS, and other infections that afflict the poorest and most vulnerable populations. MSF has programs in more than 65 countries around the world. But now, a far-reaching trade agreement is proposing new rules, and these new rules threaten to stop the flow of affordable, life-saving, generic drugs to millions of people who need them in developing countries. Have you heard of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the TPP? No? Well, you're not alone, because negotiations for the TPP Trade Pact are being conducted in secret behind closed doors. And as it stands today, the TPP is slated to become the most harmful trade agreement ever for access to medicines. The TPP could impose new rules that will extend monopoly protection for medicines, keeping prices sky high for longer and blocking generic drugs from entering the market. For example, one rule would allow patents to be extended beyond 20 years. This means that patients will have to wait longer for access to affordable medicines. And this wait is potentially indefinite because another TPP rule would allow new 20-year patents to be granted for modifications of existing drugs, for a new dosage, for new formulations, even when there is no real improvement in efficacy for patients. So people must wait longer for affordable generic medicines to become available. The TPP would also require surgical methods to be patentable. For example, how a doctor operates on a patient. But there's still time to change these harmful rules before negotiations are finalized. It's time to act. Demand increased transparency in the TPP negotiations and ask countries negotiating the TPP to protect the health of millions of people in developing countries. I've been telling about Squarespace, the web platform that makes it fast and easy for anyone to create their own professional looking websites or portfolios because, frankly, 
I like to cut at their jib. I like to focus on design and simplicity. I appreciate their commitment to customer service, and I love their continuous innovation. They're constantly releasing new template designs to build new sites on and new features to make your site ever more powerful. So I just checked in with them to see what sort of magic sauce they'd been cooking up recently, and I found their new logo design feature. So now with Squarespace, you can not only design your website, you can also design yourself a personalized, totally unique logo using their intuitive tool and a growing collection of more than 7,000 icons that you mix and match and manipulate and do all sorts of things with, so it's just the way you want it. And so it's just another in a long line of features that they have to brag about that gives their users the simple yet powerful tools they need to build the website of their dreams. So you can try Squarespace for free for 14 days to see all the details yourself and even design yourself a new logo. And then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT1. That's L-E-F-T and the number one to get 10% off your purchase. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. Right now, the U.S. and 12 other countries are working on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And uh, what it's supposed to do is be a free trade deal where it encourages different countries to open up their uh, borders and their trade barriers and facilitate economic growth. Well, that sounds lovely, doesn't it? I'm in favor of economic growth. I don't want to needlessly put up trade barriers. We want free markets, right? What it turns out in reality, of course, is corporations trying to get themselves enormous favors without having to go through all those different countries' laws. Like, oh, you gotta get, you got to bribe all the politicians, campaign contributions, lobbyists, get the laws passed. That's kind of a pain in the ass, right? Instead, you do it through a trade deal. And then in the trade deal, you say that those sovereign countries can't even argue with that trade deal. Isn't that amazing? That actually, for the first time, puts corporations not on par with uh, nation states, but above nation states which is exactly, unfortunately, the situation the entire world finds itself in now. But don't worry, luckily, uh, Americans, which uh, are now driving this process more than anyone else, elected a progressive president, Barack Obama, and obviously this might have happened under Bush or so, but no, 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 we've got change in America, so obviously President Obama isn't gonna participate in this nonsense, except for the fact that, of course, he is spearheading. Now, Huffington Post explains, uh, because they were the ones that got the documents, that show you what's in these deals. In fact, they got it from one of the 12 nations that are participated. So, one of the most controversial provisions in the talks includes new corporate empowerment language insisted upon by the US government, which would allow foreign companies to challenge laws or regulations in a privately run international court. So, oh, I don't like your law about pollution in Australia, Sad day for you, your law no longer exists. I go to a privately run court and I take my case there and lo and behold, number one, my chances are far, far better. And number two, if that court says the ExxonMobil is right and the people of Australia are wrong, that's a sad day for the people of Australia. You've lost your sovereignty. By the way, among those 12 nations are the United States of America. Yes, we're leading this movement to take away our own sovereignty. I'm sure Republicans are enraged by this, right? I mean, they're always talking about sovereignty, sovereignty. Nothing takes away our sovereignty more than this agreement does. I'm waiting, Republicans, I'm waiting on you. Nothing so far. Because when a corporation takes away our sovereignty, Republican politicians love it. But to be fair, so do Democratic politicians like Barack Obama. 
So Huffington Post explains further, under World Trade Organization treaties, this political power to contest government law is reserved for sovereign nations. So that's the old system. The new system would be, sorry sovereign nations, now corporations are just a tiny rung above you. They get to also bring you to international court. And it's a privately run court. Well, um, I'm sure, as I said, President Obama and his progressive team must be fighting back. Here's what Huffington Post reports. The United States, as in previous rounds, has shown no flexibility on its proposal. Meaning, not only did the United States propose this, but they will not allow any of the other countries to disagree. Now, because of that, the trade deal might not even happen. So that might be a good thing in an ironic way. But look at how the US is adamantly saying you will allow corporations to take over your governments as we have done here in the US. Gee, I wonder who's running the US. You think it's, you think it's Obama? You think it's a politician? You think it's a single individual? If you have corporations fund all of our politicians, you're gonna be surprised when it turns out those politicians are in fact working for those same corporations? No, no, but I hear, no, it's okay, Barack Obama's an African American. So he couldn't possibly be a sellout politicians in favor of corporations. In fact, if you're a corporation, who would you have represent you? Someone obvious like Dick Cheney going around giving you know, uh, no-bid contracts? Or someone who's not obvious at all, but does the same things. So, under NAFTA, companies including ExxonMobil, Dow Chemical, and Eli Lilly have attempted to overrule Canadian regulations on offshore oil drilling, fracking, pesticides, drug patents, and other issues. Companies could challenge an even broader array of rules under the TPP language. You want to have your own laws about pollution, fracking, pesticides. You don't get to decide. Now Monsanto gets to decide. Dow gets to decide, Exxon gets to decide. If they want pesticides in your food, you will have goddamn pesticides in your food. Who do you think runs this place? The Obama administration is insisting on mandating new intellectual property rules in the treaty that would grant pharmaceutical companies long-term monopolies on new medications. As a result, companies can charge high prices without regard to competition from generic providers. Now. For the people who voted for change under President Obama, which by the way includes myself, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> apparently change meant I'm gonna make it worse than Bush. Now if you remember under Bush, these drug companies got the same exact deal. Our government could not even negotiate with them. In order to, to get lower prices for Medicare, Medicaid, save the taxpayers money, you would normally negotiate. And the government, since it's a giant customer, would have huge negotiation leverage. They put it in the law that the government could not negotiate. The drug companies just name their price and like suckers, the taxpayers pay it. Now, not only did Obama include that in Obamacare as well, as he was fighting the insurance companies and the drug companies, <laughs> go to one, go to one. No one loved the, the Obamacare law as much as the drug companies did. It does some positive things like cover more people, but what it also does is in return, it says you have a mandate, you must buy private insurance, you cannot buy government insurance, and you must pay whatever rate the drug companies say. So Obama continued that from Bush, but now he's adding another part to it where that law wouldn't just apply to the US, it would apply to this entire trade group. So making Bush's horrible policies that gave these giant advantages to corporations global. How's that for change you can believe in? Well, I'm sure they've been flexible on this. Oh, look at this. 
Also, according to the December memo, the U.S. has reintroduced a proposal that would hamper government health services from negotiating lower drug prices with pharmaceutical companies. Hmm, it doesn't appear that they're very flexible at all on that. It, it appears that they are blasting forward to make sure that you have an incredibly high price on your medication throughout the world. By the way, when you have a high price, a lot of people can't afford it. More people die. By the way, in very, very large numbers. Well, if they can't afford the drug prices that the multinational corporations set, sad day for them. <laughs> they should have elected a president instead of the donors electing the president. The donors paid for Obama, they get what they paid for. The Obama administration is seeking to curtail, as they explain here, the use of capital controls by foreign governments. The loss of these tools would dramatically limit the ability of governments to prevent and stem banking crises. Oh great, if the rest of it wasn't bad enough, if you like the banking crises of 2008, well, we got a lot more of that in store for you. Brought to you by this so-called progressive president, the Republicans agree, the Democrats agree. It's time to screw over the American people and people all over the world and let the drug companies, the banks, and all the other large corporations in charge run amok. And on this issue, quote, the United States has, shows zero flexibility. If you thought we were in the pocket of the drug companies and ExxonMobil, wait till you get a load of us on the banking issue. Zero flexibility. You will do exactly as American banks, and by the way, also Swiss banks, uh, English banks, German banks, tell you to do. They run the world. Finally, Paul Davis, uh, an ACT UP protester, says, hey, wait a minute. I thought Pro President Obama said that he was going to follow in the footsteps of Nelson Mandela. In fact, he says the president says his whole career is inspired by Nelson Mandela. Well, then he needs to follow through on Mandela's commitment to allowing access to affordable drugs in the developing world. See, that's a very good point. Nelson Mandela fought really hard after his presidency was over to make sure that they got lower drug prices to help with the AIDS epidemic in South Africa. In South Africa and all over the world. President Obama would now be doing the exact opposite. Making sure that AIDS drug prices as well as drug prices for, that address all of the other ailments are as high as they can be. Remember when Obama said this after Mandela passed away? I am one of the countless millions who drew inspiration from Nelson Mandela's life. My very first political action, the first thing I ever did that involved an issue or a policy or politics was a protest against apartheid. And like so many around the globe, I cannot fully imagine my own life without the example that Nelson Mandela set. And so long uh, as I live, I will do what I can to learn from him. Except for what you're doing right now. So interesting full circle. And apparently the first thing he ever did was fight on Mandela's side. And now as president, one of the last things he does is to make sure to destroy Mandela's legacy by making sure that the drug companies set whatever prices they want in all these different countries. I'm Dennis Turner Jr. 
you've been watching Acronym TV. Today, WikiLeaks released the secret negotiated draft text for the entire Trans-Pacific Partnership Intellectual Property Rights Chapter. Uh, according to the WikiLeaks press release, quote, the WikiLeaks release of the text comes ahead of the decisive TPP Chief Negotiators Summit in Salt Lake City, Utah on November 19th through the 24th of this year. The chapter published by WikiLeaks is perhaps the most controversial chapter of the TPP due to its wide-ranging effect on medicines, publishers, internet services, civil liberties, and biological patents. This is a major leak because the top secret trade deal of the TPP is in fact much, much more than a trade deal. Remember NAFTA? Okay. Remember the concept of corporate personhood from the Citizens United case? Good. The TPP combines all the worst elements of NAFTA and Citizens United, shoots them up with steroids, sprinkles in a speedball, and codifies these principles into a trade, ag a trade agreement that is in fact much, much more than a trade agreement. Let's examine the corporate personhood angle first. To sum up what we do know already, based on previous leaks of working texts about how the TPP would eclipse the concept of corporate personhood, I'll quote David Swanson of RootsAction.org, who writes that the TPP would make popular the phrase corporate nationhood. Quote, many of us have heard of corporate personhood. Corporations have been given the constitutional rights of persons by U.S. courts over the past 40 years, including the right to spend money on elections. By corporate nationhood, I mean the bestowing of the rights of nations on corporations. Treaties, according to Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, are, together with the Constitution itself, the supreme law of the land. So U.S. laws would have to be made to comply with the TPP's rules. How would U.S. laws be made to comply with a trade agreement? Because, as Kevin Zeese and Margaret Flowers write, in addition to requiring that laws conform to provisions within the TPP, corporations would be allowed to sue governments in the trade tribunal if laws interfere with their profits. Governments could not represent their interests before the tribunal or appeal adverse decisions. This would be a tremendous loss of sovereignty. And who is on this tribunal? Three judges appointed by the corporations. To examine the NAFTA on steroids angle, consider that the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, signed into law nearly 20 years ago, was sold to the American people as a magic pill that would create hundreds of thousands of U.S. jobs, turn the slight deficit with Mexico into a $10 billion annual trade surplus, and eliminate illegal immigration by building a prosperous middle class in Mexico, but it has done exactly the opposite. NAFTA has created an HOV lane to accelerate the redistribution of wealth away from the poor and the working classes to the global elite, theft. And if NAFTA was horrific, the TPP has been called NAFTA on steroids. Think of the TPP as a Trojan horse, something the signatories and the representatives from Exxon, BP, Halliburton, Walmart, and and uh, Walmart and 600 corporations are writing in secret away from the prying eyes of you, the public, or Congress because should the public find out what's in this multinational agreement, there would be demonstrations in the streets that would make the 1999 Seattle protests look like a Teletubbies tickle fest by comparison. And it's hard to talk about steroids without talking about baseball. So if you permit me this final tangent, I promise to bring it all back on point. After widespread fan disenchantment following the 1994 Major League Baseball strike, Mark McGuire, his nut sack shrank to the size of a minimus of hindering knotgrass made, and his biceps bulging like a superhero, 
brought baseball back by chasing and catching Roger Maris' single-season home run record, using the unfair advantage of injecting the steroid human growth hormone into his buttocks. This was good for the game, so the thinking went. It was good for the economy, so the thinking went. And Major League Baseball turned a blind eye. But baseball, America's game, has begun the difficult and painful process of leveling the playing field, of making a commitment to eliminating the unfair advantage of steroids. The American people should demand the same of our political parties because with major corporations injecting the metaphorical equivalent of human growth hormone steroids into the buttocks of our elected officials, including the current occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, we're all screwed. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Ashes in Palatine, Illinois. Hey, Ashes, what's up? Right, um, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, my question is, um, do you know what specific industries will be affected by the TPP and how it, I, I'm not very, I don't understand how the TPP affects our sovereignty, so if you can explain that as well, too. Sure. First of all, my understanding is that basically all industries are going to be affected by the TPP because it's going to affect the way that we bank, it's going to affect the way that we engage in politics, it's going to uh, affect uh, the intellectual property, it's going to affect the ability to compete. Um, there, there are specific areas that are discussed. There are specific chapters or categories or pieces of it, but... I don't think that anybody doing business in America is not going to be affected by this in one way or the other. And the way that we lose sovereignty is the same way that we already lost some of our sovereignty with NAFTA and GATT, the WTO. And that is in, in I, and I can tell you how it works in NAFTA. In NAFTA, there is, and you can easily find this, just, you know, go to DuckDuckGo and plug in NAFTA Chapter 11 and you'll find out what I'm talking about. Chapter 11 of NAFTA sets up a, what's called a trade tribunal. And these are three-person, three-judge courts, basically. And the judges are not necessarily, uh, occasionally there's a representative of a country, but typically they are representatives of corporations. And, uh, for example, when the Mexican tuna fishers said it's unfair and illegal that in the United States they have passed a law saying that you can't catch tuna in a way that also kills dolphins, they... The, the 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 industry the, the the you know the 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 industry sued the United States of America, and the lawsuit went not to an international court but it went to the NAFTA court, 
And the NAFTA court said, yep, you're right. This is a violation of free trade. And because we had signed NAFTA, and we, you know, and when you sign a treaty, the Constitution says treaties become the supreme law of the land. They supersede everything, um, arguably with the exception of the Constitution, but they, they supersede any laws passed by Congress. And so that law by Congress that said that it was illegal to sell the tuna in the United States that had been uh, harvested, where the tuna that had been caught in a way that killed dolphins, that that was illegal and that Mexican, uh, you know, dolphin dead tuna could then come into the United States. And, and in fact, we could no longer enforce the law against our own people. And there was a similar one um, that had to do with... Um, EDTA, what is the, there's a gasoline additive that was leaching into the water in California, and they had passed a law against this, and, and the company that makes it up in California sued. And I don't recall if this was under NAFTA or WTO, but it went to one of these trade tribunals, and, and California lost. And so, you know, the stuff is still in our gasoline, or it was when I wrote Unequal Protection, when I wrote about this stuff back a decade ago. Um, there was another one where there was a, a funeral home in in uh, Alabama or Mississippi, somewhere down south, a chain of funeral homes, and a funeral home company in Canada sued them and said that the practices that you're engaging in are anti-competitive because, you know, we want to do it our way or whatever. There's some, some technical deal. And they won. In other words, our government can no longer protect our people. We no longer live by our laws. We end up living by the laws of the TPP. We end up living by the laws of NAFTA and WTO. And that's why we've lost 50,000 factories in the last, well, since 2000, since uh, George Bush came into office. It's why we've probably lost 100,000 factories or more since, since Ronald Reagan's presidency. And it's why, it's why and how we lose sovereignty in these things. Ashes, thanks a lot for the call. Don't you come We have to talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the negotiations that are happening, which are hugely troubling. If you've not been following the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this is an agreement which, on paper, claims to want to enhance trade and investments, promote innovation, help economic growth among 12 Trans-Pacific countries, specifically the U.S., Canada, Japan, Mexico, New Zealand, Australia, Brunei, Chile, Malaysia, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. Now, the history of this is that back in November of 2013, WikiLeaks put out the secret draft text of the intellectual property rights chapter of the TPP, and it was very, very troubling. The long and short of it, Lewis, is that if we step back and analyze what does the TPP truly seem to be pushing and doing. It's doing two things which we can identify. Number one, it is helping corporations and lobbyists and big uh, industry by strengthening the ways in which they can 
protect patents, extend patents, make more money off of patents. It is totally pro-business when it comes to intellectual property. However, now WikiLeaks has also put out more data, including a, a large chapter about the environment, which is another goal or stated aim of the TPP, and not similarly, I guess, in a way, to the very specific declarations made about intellectual property rights. It makes very weak declarations when it comes to environmental protections, which also have the same impact, which is that of giving big corporations more leeway and more ability to make money regardless of the impact on the environment. So let's go step by step. Intellectual property. With intellectual property, the TPP aims to uh, allow for longer default patent times for, for example, Big Pharma on medications. It also allows the uh, a prosecution of supposed violations of intellectual property rights that also will favor big corporations. On the environmental side, Lewis, listen to this. As WikiLeaks writes, the environment chapter doesn't include enforcement mechanisms actually serving the defense of the environment. It is vague and weak. And as an example of this, WikiLeaks writes that the word appropriate is found in 43 places. The word may is found in 43 places. It uses terms like make every effort to arrive at satisfactory resolutions or by technological means available and agreed to by all of the parties. I could go on and on, Lewis, but the key points are this. The language is meaningless because all it really says is that by the rules agreed upon by the parties, there will be an effort made, completely subjective, to enhance, completely subjective, what is considered completely subjective. You see what I'm saying, Lewis? They are all completely meaningless words that will do little in practice to defend, I guess, for lack of a better term, the environment. Right, uh, as, as we expected. And in, in an ideal situation, I think a trade agreement means that both countries uh, benefit greatly from trade. Uh, but it seems like this is just solely to uh, help big business. It's a corporate defense treaty, really, and you're right, it, is, it isn't really a trade agreement, and it's also, if we, if we forget about the fact that the stuff in it is troubling for just a second, the entire negotiation is happening essentially in secret. It is being, quote, fast-tracked by some parties who are interested in seeing that happen without even letting members of Congress look at the details here in many cases. And the really bad thing about this, Lewis, is that from the point of view of engaging citizens to explore what is going on, it's a very complicated story. You really need to spend time figuring out what this is and what is in it. And when you think about the simplicity of the bridge scandal with Chris Christie, which is just everybody can understand exactly what it is, it takes some effort, some minimal amount of effort to figure this out, and that's not appealing to people in many cases, and it's certainly not appealing to corporate media. Everyone comes from somewhere, some from the bottom, some the top, nobody comes from nowhere. Most of us don't know just what we've got
kids call me crazy Cause I don't try out for the play But I memorize everyone's lines Hi Sam, the TP, the TPP, what do you think? Good slogan? TP, the TPP. <laughs> you think we should aim for sinking the whole thing or reforming it through a public process as Cliff suggested last Friday? Uh, I, I mean... I'm not sure. Based upon what we've seen, I don't know what good comes out of it, frankly. Uh, but the important thing is to fight against fast track because that's the best way uh, to stop it, as far as I can tell. And there was a new report today saying that the Obama administration, according to documents obtained by WikiLeaks, is retreating from previous demands of strong international environmental protections in order to reach uh, agreement with the, I guess, 11 or 12 other partners in this Trans-Pacific Partnership. Also, there was a piece uh, in, I guess it was in the uh, New York Times, that Uh, the Democrats uh, in the Senate and the House are showing even more reluctance to pass any type of fast-track legislation. Harry Reid, who has a long record of opposing trade deals, hasn't offered public support for the legislation. That's the fast-track. Barbara Boxer said, it's not on the top of my list of things we ought to do. Sherrod Brown said... Um, Yes, Mr. Obama should mention Fast Track in the State of the Union by saying he's putting it on hold. That's how he should address it. I guess I've been running around town, leaving my tracks, burning out rubber, driving too fast, but I got a slow run down. Back to the moment the very start, from the very first day you had my heart, but I got a slow You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism exposed the TPP. A number of organizations, grassroots groups, and watchdog outlets are lining up to oppose the Trans-Pacific Partnership for all the reasons already mentioned and the dozens more that would doubtlessly be discovered after implementation. ExposeTheTPP.org is a hub of information and action aggregated by a coalition of those groups and individual volunteers. You can find out how to deliver anti-TPP talking points in six seconds to your less tuned-in friends and family, get updates on the push to fast-track the TPP through Congress, contact your representatives right letters to the editor and suggest your own actions. You can also lend a hand via a unique social media campaign by finishing the sentence, stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership and protect blank. 
in ink on the palm of your hand and snapping a selfie, you can add to the growing visual opposition to the effects the TPP will have on workers' rights, the environment, internet freedom, and more. Each picture is powerful, and together they show a diversity of those coming together to demand transparency and accountability for our government. Expose the TPP also links to more traditional forms of protest, such as events, attending a local legislator's town hall, and signing petitions from organizations you're already familiar with, such as Public Citizen, Credo, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can find out where your legislators stand and call to thank those who are on the record opposing Fast Track in order to demand that the 600 corporate trade advisors not be the only ones to review the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's not only the trade deal that threatens many of the freedoms we take for granted. The process by which it is shielded from view on its way to becoming law is a subversion of our democracy, and we must stand against it. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage? WikiLeaks has just released the draft text for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, Environment Chapter. The TPP is a trade deal that is being negotiated in secret between the U.S. and 11 other Pacific bordering nations. WikiLeaks had previously leaked the TPP Intellectual Property Chapter and the TPP Agreement documents. Now joining us in studio to discuss the latest leaked document is Kevin Zies. Kevin is the organizer with popularresistance.org. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, Kevin, Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks publisher, he's come out and he stated, quote, that WikiLeaks release shows that the public sweetener in the TPP is just media sugar water. The fabled TPP environmental chapter turns out to be a toothless public relations exercise with no enforcement mechanism. What's your response? Do you agree? Well, I, everyone who's looked at this uh, chapter, and I, I wrote an article about it today for Popular Resistance, has reached the same kind of conclusion. It's really interesting because what it looks like is President Obama is actually worse on environment and trade than President George W. Bush was. It's actually taken a step backwards. Back in 2007, uh, in order to pass a trade, a, a trade agreement, President Bush agreed to move enforcement of the in, uh, environmental uh, uh, problems into the main agreement of agreement of, of, the, of the trade agreements so they could actually be enforced. And that was in every trade agreement he put forward since 2007. Uh, now we get to this uh, trade agreement and this leak shows us there's no enforcement. Uh, there's just some pablum talk and, and nothing to enforce it. And so if a, uh, if a state, a country, is violating uh, the, the environmental standards, there's nowhere to bring them to enforce it. It's totally the opposite of the power of the investors, the, the corporations. Uh, they have very strong enforcement. They can take it to the trade tribunal. They can sue for potential lost damages. They go for a rigged trade tribunal made up of corporate lawyers that already support them, and they get a verdict that can't be appealed. Uh, there's nowhere to sue here. There's no, there's no way to have any mechanism. What, what, the, the, what it puts in place is a discussion process uh, between governments. And then they can go to an arbitrator and come to a, here's our agreement, how are you going to fix things? Uh, and, and, and then beyond that, there's nothing. Okay, I agree to fix everything like you say, but there's no way to enforce it. So it's, it's a real step back. And uh, a number of environmental groups have commented on it today. 
uh, and they've all come to the same conclusion that this is just an unacceptable agreement, that this uh, really is a, a missed opportunity uh, to really get the environment right when it comes to trade. And it's an important time. I mean, it's a missed opportunity because we're in this environmental crisis stage. We're seeing, you know, species die off. We're seeing the, the oceans being destroyed. Uh, we're seeing climate change coming quickly. We're seeing, all, you know, issue after issue, diversity issues, all sorts of issues. And so it's a real time to put the planet before profits, or there'll be no profits in the future. There are no profits on a dead planet. And so there's a pretty strong case we made that you should be putting planet, should, that's understating it, pretty strong case. There's a, you know, a clear case, imminent case, to be made to put planet before profits, and this doesn't do that. Okay, and let's talk a little bit about President Obama's push for this fast track. Oh, Can man. you first describe what's happening right now with his plan? This is the most amazing political uh, fall down I've seen since President Obama's been in office. We thought, you know, that would be a tough bet. A year ago, people thought there's no way we'd stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This is, you know, all the big corporations in the world are involved in this. The 600 corporate advisors, they spend four years negotiating this in secret. There's trillions of dollars in profits each year at stake for these corporations. President Obama's legacy, you know, he wants these corporations to be his benefactors in the future. You know, it's also, it's important to all of them. And here we are after four years of negotiations. They've, you know, they've wanted fast track now since 2011. The trade negotiator, Ron Kirk, in 2011 said, I need fast track to complete this deal. If I don't get fast track, I can't do it. No, no fast track in 2011. In March of, uh, of, of last year, uh, you had uh, Max Baucus, Senator Max Baucus, saying, we'll have uh, a fast track by, by June of, of last year, not, not even reduced. Then you had the Asian Pacific meeting in, in October. We'll have it by then. Not produced. Obama didn't even bother going because it was, he had nothing good to report. By the end of the year, nothing produced. So finally they come back from, from break after Christmas and New Year's and the holidays, and, and, um, and Baucus, uh, along with uh, you know, a couple of Republicans, and one in the Senate, one in the House, David Camp in the House, Orrin Hatch in the Senate, introduce Fast Track. And uh, the reaction has been like you know, a death knell. Uh, the, the, you know, he, he evidently didn't show it to many senators. Uh, in the Democratic Party, uh, because they, they, there's, there's been a backlash. That people are angry at Baucus for putting this forward without getting their approval first. And uh, it's half a dozen members of the Finance Committee have written uh, a letter uh, complaining about uh, this, to President Obama, complaining about the fast track provisions, saying they can't support it. Max Baucus is going to hold a hearing uh, uh, on this Thursday, but he's going to then not mark up the bill because he, the amendments will be so terrible, it won't be the bill that he, he hoped to see. On the House, and, and, and also in the Senate, Harry Reid, majority says he's not even sure he'll bring it to the floor if it gets through committee. So that's looking pretty shaky in the Senate. The House is worse. In the House, uh, first the Republicans said, we're not going to introduce this bill unless you have one Democrat co-sponsor it. One out of 200. They couldn't find one to co-sponsor Fast Track. Not one. Not one. And so they, they said, okay, we'll introduce it anyway. So David Camp, the chair of Ways and Means, introduces it. Uh, 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 Representative Levin, the, uh, the, the ranking member of Ways and Means, comes out opposed to it and saying he's working on his own version. Uh, if he's doing that, I'm not even sure, but uh, he may just not support Fast Track. We'll see where that goes. But so not one supporting it. So now, now uh, uh, Speaker Boehner is saying he will not bring it to the floor unless 50 Democrats say they support it. And the reason they're doing this, uh, the uh, Republicans, is they know that the people don't like this. The reason you're seeing this fall apart is really two things. First, there's a big social movement, a movement of movements, bringing together labor, 
internet freedom, environmental protection, uh, you know, worker rights, uh, you know, food safety, everything is affected by TPP. And so a lot of people are coming together, and for more than a year now, Congress has been getting letters and phone calls and emails and visits and protests about TPP. So they're hearing from their constituents. You know, it's a steady stream of opposition uh, from this movement of movements, this social movement that's saying no to this global corporate coup, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So that movement's very key. And that movement's gotten stronger and stronger. Every leak that comes out, it gets stronger and stronger. Ron Kirk, you might remember Ron Kirk, you know, the former trade representative before he retired in January. He negotiated three years of this, so he knows what's in it. He said that the reason we keep it secret is because if people know what was in it, it'd be so unpopular it can never pass. Well, that's becoming true. Every leak that comes out makes it less and less and less popular, and people get more and more mobilized against it. That's one thing. The other thing is President Obama. He's already got the Republicans against him, and now he's, the, the chickens are coming to ro- home to roost with the Democratic Party. He's been for his whole presidency trying to make deals with Republicans, trying to kowtow to Wall Street, kowtow to big business, putting Monsanto in as, as his foods are, putting General Electric in as his jobs are. You know, so he's kowtowed to the big business interests and, and Republicans, and the Democrats are fed up with it. They're, they're, they know they're up for election this year, and they can't support this, this fast track and keep, their, keep any hope of a majority in the House and keep majority in the, in the Senate. If they go with the fast track, they, they can kiss their political future in the next few years. Goodbye. Kevin, I have to bring up the counter-argument um, for why people should... There's be- a counter-argument? Yes, there actually no is. No way! Because <laughs> $942 billion in 2012, they're saying that um, we're essentially going to be producing more, there's going to be oh, more boosts to jobs if, if, if import tariffs are largely eliminated and things like that. What do you say to well, that? Well, you know, those numbers come from the Pete Peterson Foundation, which is uh, a neoliberal uh, uh, kind of extremist foundation. Unfortunately, President Obama relies on them a lot. They funded his, uh, his deficit commission, for example, provided offices and executive directors, and so they helped to make that mistake of Obama's happened. Uh, they're doing the same thing here. They, the same kind of things about NAFTA before NAFTA uh, was put in place. We've had NAFTA now for 20 years. People know what the truth is. And the truth of NAFTA is we lost a million jobs. Uh, we, we saw the uh, agricultural economy of Mexico destroyed. We saw a massive influx of immigration in the United States because they couldn't make it in, in Mexico any longer. And we've seen it uh, in the last year and a half with the South Korean agreement, which is a, a modern trade agreement. Same kind of results. Lost jobs, increased trade deficit, not much good coming for people, either country, only the wealthiest get wealthier. And there's been studies by the independent uh, uh, economists who have, who, have, who have looked at this and uh, have, have come to the conclusion that they, they would see uh, 90% of Americans would see their wealth go down, their income go down if TPP passes, 90%. What member of Congress wants to sign on to that? And, and, and a, a tiny increase in the GDP, one-tenth of one percent per year. It's like putting a f- new phone on the market. You know, it's a blip. Uh, and so it has almost no growth on the economy, uh, makes, the, makes the middle class and working class poorer, and it makes the wealthier wealthier. So it'll increase the wealth divide. So when President Obama is going to make a big push on this in the State of the Union, you know, and, and, and he's going to use these kind of fake numbers. The media is going to tear them apart. I mean, we're going to tear them apart. It'll be the truth will. He'll look foolish when he makes those arguments. He's going to say he wants to create jobs when NAFTA lost us a million jobs. So a trade agreement is going to lose jobs, not create jobs. He's going to want to grow the economy. This isn't grow, This grows the trade deficit. It doesn't grow the economy. I mean, so he's he's going to be making false arguments. I, I just don't understand why these politicians still believe. 
that these uh, so-called free trade agreements, which really are rigged trade for the wealthiest, why these rigged trade agreements are a positive for the economy. They're not. They're, they're, they're an undertow on the economy. They, they make us weaker. We have to really, I'm not against trade. No one's against trade. The issue is what kind of trade. And we have to, we've now got you know, all this experience with these corporate trade agreements going back 20, 30 years now. It's time to rethink it. It hasn't worked. It's, it, we've had a growing uh, uh, international trade deficit. Uh, workers are going downhill. Uh, they're, they're getting less income, less wealth. The economy is less stable. Uh, the wealth divide's gotten bigger. You're seeing revolutions all over the world because this is, this is affecting the whole, the whole world. It's time to rethink trade. And what that means is we need to move toward a new goal, a fair trade regimen and, and a, a trade regimen where uh, people and their needs and the planet and its protection come before profits. People and planet before profits. And we need a new process. It can't be this secret behind closed doors telling us it's all great, like uh, Assange says, you know, sugar water, telling us sugar water stories about how fantastic this modern trade agreement's gonna be, and then the truth comes out, it's all lies. Uh, we have to, in fact, we have to you know, have an open, transparent process where civil society is a participant. It's our future, too. That's what everyone around the world is revolting for. They're revolting for real democracy. This is the opposite of real democracy. This is oligarchy, uh, hidden from the people, uh, designed to put profits before anything else, and it's a big mistake for the world, and it's a big mistake for President Obama's legacy. Hi, Jay. My name is Zek. I'm from San Francisco, California, and um, I listened to your episode on reproductive rights today while I was at work. Most of the episode I really enjoyed. There was a lot of great information, a lot of great clips in there. There were a few things that I really was not thrilled with. I was kind of disappointed, actually, and I wanted to point them out to you. And um, the first of which was the segment from All In with Chris Hayes, where he was talking about rape insurance. I know that everybody was calling this issue in Michigan rape insurance, needing supplemental abortion insurance. But uh, there was a great article by Jessica Valenti over at The Nation entitled, uh, titled uh, Please Don't Call It Rape Insurance, where she basically summed up that by calling it rape insurance, you're classifying abortion into acceptable abortion, you know, e.g. rape abortion, and unacceptable or bad abortions, such as socioeconomic factors or family planning reasons or health concerns or whatever reason. So I'd like you to maybe check out that article and give it a read. I figured I would jump in here, address Zach's first issue before getting to his second in just a moment. Uh, but before I tell you what happened behind the scenes with the show and how that clip ended up on the show, I will first tell you what did not happen. So, you know, Michigan starts uh, talking about anti-abortion legislation, feminist, pro-choice activists, media, strategists, professionals sort of jump on the idea of referring to this legislation that does not have an exemption for rape uh, in it. And they, they jump on the idea of calling it rape insurance because that's a good way to sort of grab the attention of people, highlight the worst part of the bill, and to differentiate it from the other similarly terrible bills 
that are not quite as terrible because at least bills in other states have uh, exemptions for rape. So, so this happens. It starts getting uh, called rape insurance. Now, here's what did not happen. Jessica Valenti didn't then go and write an article saying, please don't call it rape insurance because maybe you didn't realize, but that has some negative consequences and is a bad strategic move, followed by all of those original feminist and media strategists saying, oh, shoot, we didn't think of that. Good point. Let's all agree that we were wrong. And then we all moved on with our lives and and no one called it rape insurance anymore. That is not what happened. Uh, In fact, this is still something that reasonable people can disagree on. Uh, Basically, the way I see it, it sounds like everyone agrees on the facts and they just disagree on the political strategy involved. So I don't think that it is a terrible thing to uh, take the side of the article written by Jessica Valenti saying, hey, you know, that the wording could have negative repercussions in a strategic media sort of way. But I also see the other side. And so what happened uh, behind the scenes here on the show was I thought to myself, I have this clip uh, from Chris Hayes, and he's referring to rape insurance. Didn't I hear somewhere that we're not supposed to call it rape insurance anymore? Should I use that clip on the show? So what I did was I asked Katie Klobusik, the activist uh, czar here on the show, who is actually one of those feminist pro-choice media strategy activist professionals, and said... Hey, didn't I hear somewhere that we're not supposed to call it rape insurance? Should I play clips that say rape insurance or no? And she said, uh, yeah, no, it's okay to do that. There are very specific reasons why that's okay. Do you want me to explain that in great detail right now or just take my word for it? And I said, yeah, I'll just take your word for it. But when this call came in, I, I went to her. I said, okay, so someone called in complaining that we used a clip talking about rape insurance. Uh, what should we say about this? And so rather than me trying to summarize what she said, I will play for you a clip of Katie being interviewed on the radio uh, talking about this exact issue. There shouldn't be good abortions and bad abortions. I shouldn't have to prove I'm worthy of one. I shouldn't have to fall on what Liz calls uh, the shame sword in order to mm-hmm. get a legal medical procedure. Bridget Wittenmeyer is a state rep in Michigan, and she tweeted mm-hmm. on Tuesday before the debate, she said, I'm sorry, Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmire is a pro-choice. And one of the, they had their anti-choice groups in Michigan who tweeted out against this woman who stood up in the Michigan State Legislature and told the story of her own rape from when she was younger mm-hmm. and how this personally impacts lives. They tweeted at her, well, if she's so concerned about paying for abortion, she should just get out her checkbook and start a baby killing fund. Like they don't. They don't care. There's no compassion, right. which is why it got the, the rape insurance name is because of how specifically heinous and callous they've been to that aspect of the law. And so just to summarize further, and this is actually still in Katie's words, this is what she wrote to me today, explaining in more nuanced detail. She said that it was highlighted as such, meaning as rape insurance, in numerous outlets because the lack of a rape exception is what makes the Michigan law stand out above the more than 20 states which place restrictions on abortion care coverage through private insurance companies. And that the state legislator stood up on the floor and described her sexual assault as one reason why the law was utterly unconscionable and she was brushed aside. And so it's the combination of those two things why organizers and advocates dubbed it as rape insurance. And so to summarize the summary, the clip played on Best of the Left, as well as the opinions 
held by people like Katie and other pro-choice activists were decisions not made lightly. They were they, they were not made out of thoughtlessness. They were made with a whole lot of thought and strategy put behind it. Now, as I said, I think reasonable people can disagree. But to be clear, like this wasn't a mistake that was made. Now let's go ahead and hear Zach's other complaint. The other thing I wanted to point out was from the Tom Hartman show. Tom Hartman was trying to figure out, or he was musing on, why old Republican white men want to control everyone's vagina and reproductive rights. And he started talking about sexual insecurities and in a mock voice. What causes these typically older white men to want to have such control over the reproductive functions of women? Is it some kind of just fundamental sexual insecurity? Oh, it's too small. Well, maybe I can pretend it's bigger by controlling these women. Is it that? And I just want to say that, like, body shaming is unacceptable. It's not acceptable to criticize a man's penis size. It's not acceptable to criticize somebody's weight. It is not, it's not acceptable. It's just wrong. And we on the left should be better than that. We are better than that, and we need to be called out when we're not better than that. And I was really disappointed in Tom Hartman, and I was kind of disappointed in you for even playing that on your show with that in there. That said, he still could have followed that sexual insecurity thing and followed it to, you know, old white Republican men are afraid that if abortion access is readily available, that women are going to cheat on them and leave them and run around. It's not a legitimate fear, but it is legitimately a fear that a lot of alpha male types have about the women they want to be in control with. So I wanted to point out that, that to you as well. I just, I don't think it's ever appropriate to criticize the way somebody's body was created genetically that they have no control over. If you have a problem with somebody's opinion or the words that come out of their mouth or the stupid actions they make, you have every right to call that out. But you do not have a right to criticize somebody's genitalia. Thanks for your show. I really do love it despite my criticism. Now on this one, I will admit that either I am misinterpreting what Tom is saying or that maybe this is an issue that reasonable people could disagree on. But mostly I think that Zach is misinterpreting what Tom is saying. My interpretation of, of Tom Hartman and the way he uses the mocking voice to you know, talk about conservatives trying to control women because they have small penises, the way he phrases it, he's obviously not expressing his own feelings on the issue and he is not body shaming. He is speaking in the words of a terrible conservative person who wants to control women's bodies and has self-esteem issues potentially brought on by their own self-image, you know, and their own self-body shaming. So he is not mocking people for their bodies. He is mocking people who would mock people for their bodies. He is, you know, mocking someone who would allow their own bad self-esteem to manifest itself in a way that you know, makes them want to control women and, and, and makes them overly concerned about the size of their penis. Like he, he's speaking in their voice, not his own in that instance. So, I mean, that, that's my interpretation of it. I think it's pretty clear 
Uh, obviously, Zach didn't hear it that way. And like I said, maybe reasonable people could disagree and that maybe it's not even appropriate or it's offensive somehow to speak in someone else's voice and make them sound bad. And, I, you know, I, I don't know. I personally, I think that's perfectly fine. I, you know, I am actually a fan of saying really terrible things in the voice of someone who you are trying to show to be terrible. That's kind of the whole point of that. So uh, anyways, that's my take on that. Uh, before we wrap up the show, though, I just want to mention that uh, I, I have surpassed my goal for the Polar Bear Plunge. I know it was sudden, right? Uh, I sent out an email appeal today, so and, and so many people uh, chipped in today that I, I can't even read all of their names, uh, so, but I will read first names. So uh, people who have donated just within the past couple of days, uh, most of whom donated just today took me from around 45 percent uh up to well i'll get to that in a second but first thanks to scott melinda crystal amanda nicholas mara marianne craig zxc rich nancy nancy kim barry Sechevan, shannon nancy alarmprofessor.com nice way to get a plug in there deborah brucey anonymous ian sarah eileen mike chris jeremy craig lee fidicio kurt zach beth martin jeffrey ronald alice linda and bram uh bringing the total up to 128 percent of my goal uh one thousand nine hundred twenty five dollars as of this recording huge thanks to everyone who chipped in i really really appreciate it it is not too late to donate yourself if you want you know why not like let's go for a stretch goal um i mean two thousand is right around the corner we could do that um you know if i got like in the 2200 range that would mean that i raised more money than my old boss uh, so that would be exciting i uh, you know if i if i get into the 2100 range that puts me in the top top 6 fundraisers uh, so that would be nice 2500 you know pretty much uh, that's like top 2 or 3 territory so if if you want to chip in Reaching my arbitrary goal of $1,500 was not really the ultimate goal. It was really to raise as much as possible. So uh, if you want to help me reach those stretch goals, uh, please do. The link is still up at bestofleft.com to the Polar Bear Plunge or go to the uh, event itself at keepwintercold.org. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yeah outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained